Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello, and thank you for taking time to join us today. I am Maria Morales with Colibri Healthcare. Our goal for this podcast is to better understand the very real phenomena of how post-traumatic stress affects healthcare workers. We all know that the healthcare system brings its own unique challenges for delivering quality, safe, and cost-effective healthcare. However, what happens when deliverers of healthcare, the healthcare workers themselves, exhibit symptoms of stress, post-traumatic stress, or even post-traumatic stress disorder? What do these symptoms look like? Do we feel we could accurately identify signs or symptoms that colleagues display? How frequent or common is post-traumatic stress in our very own healthcare team members? I am joined by an expert in behavioral health and improving healthcare for underserved and diverse populations, Dr. Daphne Essex. Dr. Daphne Essex is a dual certified psychiatric mental health and family nurse practitioner with a doctoral degree with an emphasis on improving healthcare for underserved and diverse populations. She treats clients with various behavioral and medical disorders. She is a 33-year military veteran and is a member of the Nurse Practitioner Alliance of Alabama, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association, the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, and the Advanced Practitioners for the River Region. What are some other experiences or interests that you would like to tell us about yourself that you bring to the table for this topic? Thanks, Maria. So greetings to all who are listening to this podcast on what does post-traumatic stress look like in healthcare workers. In addition to the said bio, I have a master's in nursing in adult education as well as psychiatric nursing. I have worked in varied settings throughout my career as a nurse practitioner to include emergency and correctional medicine, family practice, as well as with the active military and veterans. Currently, I am a contributing faculty teaching prospective psychiatric nurse practitioner students. Well, you certainly have much experience to help explain more about this topic for us and help us to spread awareness about these matters. Well, I, I have certainly enjoyed um, and I'm continuing to enjoy my professional journey in behavioral health. The field of behavioral health is so diverse and varies on this wide continuum spectrum that goes from mental wellness to mental illness. I firmly believe if the mind can function at its fullest potential on the wellness end of the spectrum, we would have less psychological stress and negative behaviors, um, less pain and violence as well. So our overall physical health would be great. We could improve our resilience and just have a better outlook on life as it relates to self and others. So what we do know is that the mind can go from wellness to illness in a matter of seconds. The mind is very powerful and the way we think is so interesting. Um, I'm de delighted to have chosen this career path. Oh, that's great. And what a great point you made. The mind can change quickly. So we know health is not a static thing or a static condition. 
We have to continually interact and respond to the changing world with a physical body and an intangible mind that changes too. So this reminds us even more how we should monitor and maintain our mental and physical well-being. Thank you, Dr. Essex, for sharing with us and being here today. Let's go ahead and jump more into this conversation. So we're going to start off with a discussion of symptoms and characteristics of stress, post-traumatic stress, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Please tell us about post-traumatic stress symptoms, known as PTSS, and post-traumatic stress disorder, known as PTSD. Um, I want to start by simply defining PTSD according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders also known as DSM, which is now the DSM-5-TR, which is a text revision. So in order to be diagnosed with PTSD, the adult, child, adolescent, or the healthcare workers in this case um, must develop symptoms after being exposed to one or more uh, traumatic events. It is so important um, to know that each individual responds differently to PTSD. And the response is normally provoked by situations, the past coping strategies, support systems. Although our focus here is on healthcare workers, we know that healthcare workers must meet the same criteria as any other individual as outlined by the DSM criteria for PTSD. We do realize that the PTSD onset can be considered acute, chronic, or delayed in these individuals. Hmm. Please tell us more about that, the differences between acute, chronic, or delayed. So in the acute phase, symptoms normally last less than three months. Then you have your chronic PTSD symptoms, which are usually greater than three months. And with a delayed onset of PTSD, those symptoms are at least six months after the occurred stressor. So identifying which phase the healthcare worker is in is very significant because the longer the individual goes without treatment, the longer and more intense the treatment or the therapy may be for that healthcare worker. Okay, so there could be a stressful traumatic event and some people may not experience symptoms until possibly months and months later. Yes, this is true. Not only months, it can be years. So often when delayed to this extent, the individual might have suppressed a lot of the symptoms and had some type of trigger that exacerbated the signs or the symptoms of the PTSD. Now, PTSD doesn't look any different in healthcare workers than it does in non-healthcare workers. PTSD is PTSD regardless of the individual. So the symptoms will either look the same or have some similarity. We use the DSM as a guide to assist with diagnosing the PTSD. Now there are diagnostic criteria outlined in the DSM. However, you you have to assess and evaluate the presentation of the individual. Not everyone's symptoms will be identical as laid out in, in the textbook. However, it is our diagnosis Bible guide. So to have the diagnosis of PTSD for at least one month, um, the adult must have 
um, the following or some responses to validate the symptoms. And some of these responses include having at least one re-experiencing symptom like flashbacks, bad dreams, memories, or those frightening thoughts. Also, there must be at least one avoidance symptom, which um, that person may stay away from places that remind them of the experience, or they might avoid the thoughts or the feelings related to the situation. There must be at least two arousal or reactivity symptoms uh, when the individual is easily startled or feeling tense and on edge. They might have outbursts or have difficulty sleeping as well. In addition to all of these, there must be at least uh, two cognition and mood symptoms, such as having trouble remembering key events, having those negative thoughts of self and of the world, guilty feelings, blame. Uh, there's loss of interest in things um, that is or was normally enjoyed at one point in that person's life. Wow. Okay. Well, now that you have told us about PTSD, let's step aside for a moment to mention post-traumatic stress syndrome and post-traumatic stress. What is the difference between these two? Uh, is post-traumatic stress more like a layman's term for stress, or does it have a more psychological or medical definition? Now, some may use these terms interchangeably, However, there are some slight differences in each one. When we use the word syndrome, we're looking for signs and symptoms of a pattern or occurrence um, that the illness might follow. In addition, a syndrome might have a pathological or disease causing source. So when we use the term post-traumatic stress, you often think of an event or situation that has happened or caused the individual to respond or react in a way that doesn't appear normal. So the person coping abilities are usually altered in some way. Um, PTSD, which is the disorder, um, encompasses the syndrome, the stress, uh, the mood, thinking abilities and behaviors of the person. So in other words, it covers a multitude of signs and symptoms related to the issue. So we have talked about the criteria for PTSD and provided some examples and descriptors for each to assist with making the diagnosis. So please understand that the DSM is only a guide. The most important thing to be evaluated is the presentation of the healthcare worker being that other disorders may be a factor with the healthcare worker presentation. So therefore, the subjective an objective component of the interview is very important, and it might take several visits to make the diagnosis. Are there some other differential diagnoses or situations that a person could be experiencing that look like PTSS or PTSD, or that might also be a concern when a person is suffering with PTSS or PTSD? So in behavioral health, um, some individuals some diagnoses actually overlap. However, some symptoms are more pronounced than others. For example, clients with PTSD are most likely to present with mild to severe forms of either anxiety or depression. Both the anxiety and depression would need to be treated 
but with the assistance of the clients, if that is possible, a determination should be made regarding which one of these symptoms are most destructive or traumatic to the client. So as a provider, we have to be mindful of other disorders that might exacerbate symptoms that, re that resemble PTSS or PTSD. You've made some clarifying statements and good points to keep in mind. A couple things stick out to me. So one, people, patients, clients, they might not present a textbook presentation. Just like patients don't always have the exact same symptoms or the exact same severity of various symptoms when they have a disease or an illness. People can present within a range of symptoms when experiencing issues of a mental or behavioral health nature, just like physical condition. So, for example, I was thinking everyone with appendicitis may not present with the same description of pain or the same body temperature or otherwise, but there's a common range of signs and symptoms for which a healthcare provider might consider appendicitis as part of the differential diagnosis. So with psychologically related diagnoses, a range of different presentations is possible as well. So in general, I'm just curious, do you find practitioners more concerned with missing a psychiatric diagnosis or over-identifying one? Um, so in general, uh, practitioners are more concerned about self-injuries or self-harm of the client that may lead to death by suicide. However, it is our intent to get the most accurate data from the client or significant others so an effective treatment plan can be generated as soon as possible. This is when the interview skills and behavior screening, screenings become uh, very important because there are other psychiatric diagnoses that mimic PTSD. This may be because uh, PTSD is an umbrella to anxiety and depression, which if left untreated can lead to or mimic other syndromes or other disorders. It's awesome um, to have treatment regimens that can simultaneously tackle both the anxiety and the depression. Okay. The second point that stuck out to me as I was listening um, was about isolating or discerning the most destructive or traumatic symptoms. Ideally, I guess we would want to address all issues, all concerns, and help people increase their level of health and well-being. But treatment takes time. It's a process. Uh, sometimes a starting point has to be decided. Yes, we must start somewhere. So this is not always an easy process. Uh, you must first build that relationship with the client and approach the client in a way uh, so they will open up to you. Sometimes you only have that one opportunity to make a difference. We only know what is being told and we try to put that with an observation. So sometimes the subjective information and objective matchup, um, objective matchup, and sometimes it doesn't. So this is why it's important to provide patient-centered care. Ask the client, what would you like to accomplish at this visit? How do you want to feel? Uh, what changes do you think you can make to get your highest level of functioning? 
it's surprisingly how some clients don't go deep into the foundation of their problems. Uh, this is often, this is when psychotherapy become an important aspect of the treatment plan. Psychosocial assessments become an important key to the treatment process as well. So the ultimate goal is stabilize the individual in efforts to get the individual back to the wellness end of the continuum. So in um, the DSM, there are at least nine differential diagnoses that are listed to rule out before being diagnosed with PTSD. We look at uh, acute stress disorder. This occurs like three days after the traumatic events, but only lasts like 30 days or less following the event. You have your adjustment disorder, which may or may not meet a part of the PTSD criteria, example, divorces, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones. Then you have your anxiety disorder, which, and also your OCD, which is your obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, there are repetitive intrusive thoughts that are not related to any type of trauma. You have major depression. Depression may or may not be a result of trauma. You have personality disorder. These um, internal difficulties may be exacerbated by PTSD, but the symptoms were present prior to the traumatic event. Then you have your dissociative disorders. Uh, these may or may not be a result of trauma. Sometimes this could be a result of a major depressive episode. You also have your conversion disorders, which is like a neurological functional issue. Then we have your psychotic disorders, such as your bipolar and your schizophrenic disorders. And you also have your traumatic brain injury. So the client may also present with sleep issues such as insomnia, have nightmares. They, that may be a result of PTSD or one of the differentials. Again, it is important that we be as detailed as possible when obtaining subjective and objective data from the client. Is there a way to give a concise overview of when a person might cross over from exhibiting symptoms of stress in general to a more complex, serious issue. Um, can you discuss differences for us between potentially traumatic events and PTSD? Uh, to answer um, this question, we never know what experience an individual may encounter that would cause them to convert from being able to cope with daily stressors to having PTSD. So, however, what we do know is that unresolved stressors, such as the repetitive stress that healthcare workers encountered during the height of COVID-19, which lasted more than 30 days, were factors that may have been a cause to, for the healthcare worker to cross over from just having an acute stress reaction or disorder, which is a result of a three to 30 day post-exposure to having PTSD which is a result of symptoms lasting greater than a month. So there are several protective factors that may prevent the healthcare worker from having a moderate to severe form of PTSD. Some of the protective factors could be a result of genetics or having that great support system. Um, their age could be a factor. Having children, being married, um, some, some identify potentially causative factors 
of PTSD are a result of symptoms lasting more than a month, causing significant distress and, and interrupting the daily function of the individual. And these can be a result of natural disasters, serious accidents, uh, your terrorist acts, war, comeback, rape. Um, threat, being threatened with death or sexual violence or serious injuries. Now, these events can potentially cause PTSD. However, we would not know if the healthcare worker would develop PTSD from the causative factors until they present with some or all of the symptoms as identified in the DSM, as we discussed earlier. So if any client um, had experience with one of the causative factors, then the client is most certainly a high-risk candidate for PTSD. That is very interesting. I see there are commonalities, but there's so much that's so individualized from person to person. Uh, could you describe a scenario for us illustrating how a healthcare team member might be progressing down the road of post-traumatic stress? Uh, how might they come across to others or interact with others? So what we do know is that experience helped to shape us, whether it's in a positive or negative way. The healthcare worker might mention during a conversation that they, they might have been experiencing uh, nightmares or unable to get certain memories off of their minds. Continuing to talk about the death of clients or the scene of the trauma and and having or expressing that feeling of guilt. The healthcare worker may also attempt to avoid taking care of a, of a dying client. Their thoughts might become distorted and the healthcare worker might start making medical errors, providing substandard care, or being unable to remember situations. So the client or the person hygiene might also become a factor. Um, the high energy coworker personality may no longer be there or no longer be positive or the worker is no longer experiencing that happiness that you normally see. They look tired all the time and irritable. So a coworker being able to know that there has been a change is a start in the right direction. Okay. Uh, if you can, please paint a picture for us of how this kind of stress in a team member might go unrecognized until symptoms were undeniable or obvious. Okay, so what we know is that PTSD has many faces. Um, it may be difficult to immediately identify signs of PTSD in your peer, being that you may only be with them during certain shifts or work days. However, if you're able to identify a change in the peer's behavior or their mood, their job performance, and their social stance from what you do know, there's a possibility that the team member um, may have PTSD, especially if you know they have experienced some type of traumatic event or have one of the previously identified causative factors. So some individuals' symptoms are less noticeable than others. Some symptoms are more progressive. Some have constant symptoms that may range from mild to severe. Um, again, the symptoms will vary from person to person and may be acute. It could be chronic or delayed, like we previously talked about. Therefore, um, healthcare workers should be educated on symptoms of PTSD and maintain surveillance on each other. 
generally they may fall into the re-experiencing symptoms such as having those flashbacks or the physical sensations such as sweating, feeling sick or numb in that pain. They could have hypoarousal, um, being anxious and can't relax, just easily startled, always on edge and having those avoidance issues. Well, thank you for telling us so much about the symptomatology and related factors. At this point, why don't we go ahead and transition to talking about prevalence now? So do you have any statistics or other data for us to help us understand the prevalence of post-traumatic stress, uh, specifically in healthcare workers? Is there data like that out there specifically for healthcare workers? So PTSD is one of the most commonly reported um, psychological health conditions uh, reported at approximately like 21.7%. And healthcare workers, the majority are females under the age of 60 in urban areas. These numbers vary according to the study and the location. So the report of PTSD was like 14% versus 21% in healthcare workers versus those non-healthcare workers. Anxiety disorders was reported to be 13% versus 20% in healthcare workers versus your non-healthcare workers. And major depressive disorders was reported to be at 9% um, in healthcare workers versus, your versus 15% in your non-medical uh, personnel. So the highest prevalence of anxiety and PTSD were found among those under 40 years of age and having the lower educational status. So please keep in mind that these numbers will vary depending on the part of the world that you're in and the size of the sample that actually participated in the study. So some of the studies that were done were based on work areas in the hospital. Those who worked with COVID patients versus those who did not were reported um, to have PTSD or some type of psychological disorder at a rate of like 28.7% versus 13% respectively. So the intensive care healthcare workers would differ from the frontline workers versus the medical surgical workers. Again, there are so many variations in these percentages based on psychosocial circumstances. Wow. I did not know that PTSD was the most commonly reported psychological health condition. I mean, a number in the 20% range is indeed significant. Uh, how does that compare to burnout or suicide statistics for healthcare workers? As we continue to look at burnout and suicide statistics, we must not forget that the healthcare industry was already facing a shortage of workers. Healthcare workers were experiencing burnout, stress, and unreported um, psychological challenges prior to the pandemic. What the pandemic did was exacerbate these symptoms. If there were system failures related to leadership support, it worsened. Burnout increased, your stress increased, and more injury was more pronounced. Having to choose who would get that last ventilator, which client or patient may need the most care at this moment. What we do know is that new symptoms either developed or were exacerbated by the pandemic. Now, there was a study from nine intensive care units in the UK which indicated that 
13% of healthcare workers had contemplated suicide or some type of self-harm during the pandemic. The suicide ideation rate among healthcare workers in Europe and Asia were estimated to be from 3.6 to 11%. In Australia, an online study was done on like 10,000 frontline healthcare workers. And one out, of the, one out of the 10 healthcare workers reported thoughts of suicide or self-harm over a two-week period during the second pandemic wave that we had. Healthcare workers were identified to have more psychological stressors as compared to the general population. So prior to the pandemic, depression, anxiety, traumatic stress condition, suicidal thoughts, and self-harm had increased as compared to the general population. There was a pre-pandemic study called Beyond the Blue in Australia that indicated 10.4% of doctors had suicidal ideations over a 12-month period. A study done nationally indicated that female healthcare professionals, male nurses and midwives have higher suicide deaths than other healthcare workers. Causative factors were high work demands, uh, the long hours, the workplace uh, violence exposure, and there was lack of organizational support. We do have to keep in mind that there were other pandemics and incidents that had already caused psychological stress in, in healthcare workers previously. So stigma related to having these psychological stressors and distress um, had a great hindrance um, to the needed care and prevented healthcare workers from coming forth for assistance. I feel like we need to take a moment to respectfully think about this. Um, that's some serious information. Those frontline healthcare workers, those in the trenches, so to speak, those who assumed more risk than usual to care for others during a pandemic, not only was there a risk of working with a virus we didn't fully understand at the time, but there was also the exacerbated stress which could open the door for psychological distress. This really makes the situation that much more complex and more of a risk to our fellow healthcare workers. We certainly do need to keep in mind the need to, to take care of our own as we take care of others. But let's go ahead and continue discussing some more topics along this path. It seems like there are many that have left their jobs or even healthcare altogether. There's still plenty of still practicing professionals, but it seems like many have left. Okay, so burnout, along with more distress, have been factors of, in healthcare workers actually leaving the profession or their area of specialties. For instance, you have ICU nurses reporting an extreme amount of stress in the work area. You had clients on ventilators with multi-organ failure for long periods of time. The mort mortality rates in one study were reported to be as high as 97%. Um, there were barriers in the system that limited um, the healthcare workers' ability to provide that safe and effective care. There were lack of your PPE, which is your personal protective equipment, ventilators, um, family visitation was limited, or there were no visitation at all. Uh, there were concerns about the safety of, of yourself 
uh, fear of contracting COVID or even giving the virus to loved ones and causing death. Now, keep in mind um, that there have been previous infectious outbreaks, such as your MERS, your SARS, Ebola's, uh, uh, the terrorist attacks, Hurricane Katrina, and the day-to-day -day operation that contributed to anxiety, uh, depression, PTSD, uh, burnout, and what we call more injury or more distress. Um, I would like to provide the statistics from a study that was done in China where it said the virus responsible for COVID-19 originated. So the statistics are the before and after mental health challenges that critical care nurses face prior to and during the pandemic. Remember, we're still in the pandemic, so the stresses are still with us. So you had anxiety. There was 11% um, before reported you know, cases of anxiety versus 45% now with uh, mental health challenges. With depression, there was like 13% versus 50% now with mental health challenges. Then you have 71% report distress. Um, uh, no report, um, there was no report pre-pandemic on more distress. Uh, PTSD, um, which was 33%, there was no report of the pre-pandemic PTSD in this study. So based on what you just said is a ballpark way of looking at things, anxiety more than tripled, depression skyrocketed, and it seems fair to say distress and PTSD rose considerably. That's serious. Um, you mentioned moral distress. Can you describe that some? I'm sure. So moral distress is based on ethical decisions or choices, not knowing if the right decision was made during that time. Uh, more distress is mental confusion with not knowing what is right or wrong at the time. During this time with the pandemic, there were a lot of decisions that had to be made that were uncharacteristics of that provider or the caretaker based on the circumstances. So this could be as simple as not spending enough time with the client or not being able to spend adequate time with a critical ill or the dying client. Who would get that treatment first? Um, if you have several who are critically ill, do I spend more time working on this 20 year old versus the 30 or 40 year old that have a spouse with kids? Who's going to get this last ventilator that's left? These type of decisions are difficult to triage when there's a mass amount of people presenting at one time. Yes, very difficult, very serious. Um, with the info discussed so far, do you think the pandemic has contributed to an increase in post-traumatic stress? So based on research, yes, post-traumatic stress has increased and will increase due to the pandemic. Remember, um, some PTSD symptoms are delayed and may take the individual years to acknowledge that they are experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms. Great point, Dr. Essex. All may not have been revealed or come to light yet as far as the toll on psychological or mental health that the pandemic has taken. Well, it's time to wrap up for now. We discuss symptomatology and prevalence information about post-traumatic stress with a focus on healthcare workers. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you will come back as we continue with topics such as COVID-19, 
Contributing Factors for Post-Traumatic Stress, and Interventions. A sincere thank you to Dr. Daphne Essex. This is Maria Morales for Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.